fat, an essential part of your diet. But how do you know it's high quality fat? Hi, this is Dr. Mercola helping you take control of your health. And today we are joined by an expert who's going to answer that question in a very deep dive. And her name is Dr. Kate Shanahan. Dr. Shanahan is a family physician like myself, and she's written a really magnificent tome, The Deep Nutrition. It's been out for a while and recently revised. And uh, she is in the process of actually writing a new book and has served as a consultant for the Los Angeles Lakers. So, uh, and she's really articulate advocate for some, some powerful nutritional principles that were discussed today. So welcome and thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me on. This is very exciting. Yes, indeed. So I'd like to delve a little bit into your, your story where what catalyzed your, your journey into this area of medicine, which is different. It seems like the majority of clinicians, from my experience, do have some type of personal experience like yours where yours. I, I, I didn't. I was just always passionate about health. Not that it's good or bad. It just was my, it was my focus since I was a little kid. But you got sick in 2001, and you were do, did a deep dive into studying biochemistry and molecular biology, which I think are absolutely essential to today's tools. And you, you um, tried to figure out what the connection was between your health problem and your diet and didn't reconcile with what you were being taught in school. So uh, why don't you discuss that journey? Because I think it would be very beneficial for many. Yeah, so I was practicing um, family medicine in Hawaii at the time, and um, I had gone to medical school with this fantasy that I would get to the underlying cause of some, you know, of diseases, particularly selfishly, the ones that I tended to get as an athlete, which were connective tissue. I had bursitis of every, you know, every itis, and I was always doing more stretches. And, and, what, was your, and so what was your sport? I was a runner, so I did long distance. Um, I actually had a scholarship, and I actually qualified for the Olympic trials, like wow. fifteen hundred race. And um, wow. yeah, I, I, yeah. I mean, I didn't even know that was like a, such a big honor. I was like so out of it as a teenager. I was like, my brain was focused on running, and I really didn't even know much about the rest of the world. So, um, so You're I like sub, I did a sub five minute mile for sure. Huh? Uh, right at five minutes. So, okay. you know, this was, you know, a qualify. I was probably like the last dregs that got to qualify. <laughs> That's still an impressive one. <laughs> Congratulations. That's great. So, thanks. Um, so I, um, in, in 2001, while I was in Hawaii, I developed this problem in my knee where I ended up not being able to walk more than just a few steps without getting pain, swelling, fevers, and, um, you know, going from being a, a pretty high um, level athlete, exercising an hour or two a day to sitting on the couch and just being couch bound. I was like, I felt like my life was over. I was like, no one could help me. I didn't know what was wrong. And I had had surgery, you know, I'd gone to so many specialists and nothing helped. So it wasn't until my husband said, maybe this sugar habit that you have <laughs> where you spend, you know, a lot of time creating this confection where so that I could put enough sugar in my coffee to get the right flavor. It was actually a quarter cup of sugar and a caramel sauce. Not, you know, it was a lot I needed. And, um, you know, I would do things like if I went for a 10 mile run, I would polish off a bag of M&Ms, the pound size bag. And I was like, well, you know, obviously it's not hurting me because I wasn't particularly like overweight, you know, and I have to say particularly overweight because women are always overweight. But, um, <laughs> but um, so, um, yeah, so he actually physically handed me a, a book so that I could start reading it because I was so stubborn. Um, and the book he gave me was Andrew Weil's Spontaneous Healing. Mm -hmm. And um, what Andrew Weil pointed out in there was the phrase that got me was um, talking about omega-3 fatty acids and how they're like vitamins. And it completely blew my mind because I thought fats were bad for you. They were all the same. I didn't know there were essential fats the bodies needed for anything in particular that we couldn't make. And so I was so like inspired by that idea that maybe, you know, just by the, actually I was just intrigued, like forget about helping myself. I was like, what? 
um, there's thoughts that are good for you. What is this? And so I actually, even though I couldn't walk, I flew to uh, Oahu. I had to get a wheelchair through the airport so I could go to the medical library that was on Oahu because this was 2001-ish. We didn't really have Google um, or Amazon didn't deliver to Hawaii at the time. Um, so I had to go. Well, it, and- it was just very slow. It would take a week. <laughs> Three, three days of crime. Yeah, maybe. Sure. I, I don't think we could even get it. Okay. Um, yeah. So, um, so I tried because I really didn't want to go get on the plane, but I did. And I got like three textbooks about fatty acids and biochemistry and I read them cover to cover. And by the time I was done, I realized there was so much more to the science of nutrition than what we had learned, particularly because we were messing with our food supply. Like what we were eating was not straight off the farm by any means. And the the thing that hinged, that everything hinged on was that I was a true believer that saturated fat was bad. Saturated fat was the devil. Cholesterol was, you know, you shouldn't have any. Um, and that polyunsaturated fats, vegetable oils, margarine was actually good for you. And this, remember 2001, we didn't really know about trans fats. It wasn't in the public eye, uh, just the same way that omega-3 fats, which every first grader learns about now, were not in the public eye. So, um, so I, uh, I just, I couldn't believe I, I was like, what on earth, um, how could I have, how could we be so wrong? How could all of medicine be so wrong? And so in order to um, convince myself or to explore it, I, I read like whatever I could get my hands on online. And the thing that changed, that helped me understand the key concept, the key principle was oxidation of fatty acids. And there was a PhD thesis that was online by Eva Sodergren. I, I have to shake her hand one day, wherever she is, University of Uppsala, I think it's Sweden, um, that she explained and had the, the molecular um, pathways of how polyunsaturated fatty acids actually react with oxygen and create a free radical cascade that that d- turns normal fatty acids in your body into dangerous high energy molecules that fly around the same, that are bad for us for the same reason radiation is bad for us. And, um, and it was that understanding that was the entry point into my thinking that, oh my God, I have to write a book. I can't keep eating the way I was eating. I have to find out what to eat. What is a real diet supposed to be? So like all of that was in my head at once. And um, I started talking, you know, listening to more to my patients who were really into cooking um, because I had already noticed that the 65-year-olds in Hawaii were a way healthier population than the mainland um, where I had left. And um, and I had also noticed that they were really into cooking, you know, and previously they'd start to talk about, you know, oh, we had this buffet and I made this and that and the other. And it was just like, yeah, yeah, whatever. Let's let, tell me how much of your beta blocker you're taking. And so after I was like, really, tell me more. So how do you get the pig's blood? And it was I just started asking them questions and I realized that, you know, really the key thing was their connection to nature and they were in touch with everything. They were hunting, their husbands were hunting the pigs and they would fatten the pigs in the backyard before roasting it in the emu. That's traditional Hawaiian style. Or if they were more Filipino, they would um, raise them in, you know, some other scenario and, and, you know, they would eat, they wouldn't roast them in the the traditional underground oven that you eat that meat. You know, this, the traditional underground oven in Hawaii is where, when you go to a luau and you get that yummy pork, that's like so soft, it's falling off the bone. Um, That's from the underground way of cooking it, traditional Hawaiian style. But then the Filipino was to, butcher it like more like you would see in Europe and um, use the blood for making this uh, one one kind of meal and use every single part of the animal. I mean, they would eat everything. And same with goats that they would hunt or raise the fish. They would actually save the fish guts and start fermenting them under the counter uh, for six months. It sounds disgusting, but that's actually the secret ingredient. You know, my my experience, I spent many winters in in Hawaii before I settled in Florida. And if you realize that was a much wiser strategy, a lot easier. 
easier to commute yeah. to places. So uh, that this is true for the older Hawaiians, but the the younger ones, boy, they have just um, are Americanized, and they're probably even more obese than most Americans. Absolutely. So unfortunately, they they've abandoned their traditional roots. But I wanted to comment on your experience as a runner with eating all that sugar. And, you know, it seems to me the obvious issue is that you were burning sugar as your primary fuel, which most people in the country still are doing. And, you know, the premise of your new theory now is that you need, and I totally agree with it, 60 to 85% of your diet is fat. I mean, you hit the target right on the ratio. I mean, I couldn't agree more. That's exactly what I recommend too. Uh, but you, if you, it takes a while to make that transition, and that was the issue. You needed more fat and burn as your primary fuel. You and you, as a, because you weren't, you were causing mitochondrial dysfunction, and which decimated your health and you know, and mitochondria produce ATP and energy, and of course, you were now having energy because your mitochondria weren't working too well. So I talk about that a lot in my new book, Fat for Fuel. So uh, I, you know, that's really why I wanted to have you on today because you are just done such a magnificent job of diving deep on this issue and really going and exploring the details because it's not just any fat, as you mentioned, these vegetables and trans fats. So you know, these are things you know most people know, of course, now uh, that that's the case. And there were people that too, you know, Dr. Fred Kumaro is still alive and I think 100, 203 now is. You know, he's he knew about these things 70 years ago. So it wasn't unknown. It just wasn't widely known. Richard Simmons was on board. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and there, you know, Mary Enig with, with the uh, Weston Price Foundation and others. So, and, you know, we were promoting it too. But but the issue is it wasn't widely known. And it is now. And that's a great thing. So, but there's still the devil's in the details. And you, you do really such a great job in your book of dis discussing this. In fact, you went to the point where you said you need surgery to save your life. People would hear you need to get off vegetable oil and sugar immediately. Uh, <laughs> you know, but it's just amazing. People don't do that. They'll go for open heart surgery. Let, let a surgeon crack their chest open to, to clean up their blood vessels when they don't have to do something so radical. And, you, you know, one of your primary uh, hypothesis or positions in the book is the toxicity of this vegetable oil. So why don't you go on, the, start on that because it's just, you do such a good job of, of expanding on that. So yeah, the vegetable oils are like soy and canola and palm and corn, and there's a few others. Um, and they are actually extremely common in the average American's diet. Most people, when I say vegetable oil is bad, their response is, well, I don't, I, you know, I cook with olive oil. But the fact is that the uh, statistics show that the average American gets somewhere between 30 and 50% of their calories from these oils, because it's not what you cook anywhere near as much as what you buy. Like vegetable uh, oils are in salad dressings that are in the restaurants, even the fancy restaurants, they're, they're, they can be labeled organic. So a lot of people that shop at Whole Foods or always buy organic uh, think that they're safe, right? They're, they're buying that must be a healthy oil, but no. And the reason that they are bad, the reason these fats are bad is has to do with their molecular structure. Uh, they're, they're kind of fat that if you've heard of saturated fat, there's that's like animal fat and, fat and butter, supposedly saturated fat. And uh, I explain why I'm saying supposedly, because there are always blends in, in different proportions. But um, the uh, olive oil is monounsaturated primarily. And then uh, these vegetable oils are polyunsaturated. And that means that the, that just means that they have two double bonds in there. And it's just about the chemical uh, structure. But that chemical structure has very important consequences for how these oils change when we manipulate them for processing, refining, um, as we do to put them in the bottle. And then again, when they're cooked with in order to, like in the restaurant or in manufacturing plants, when you get your healthy uh, granola bar, your healthy food bars. And then of course, if you were to cook with it at home, one of the worst places is the deep fryer. And the, 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 what they do is they, they degrade to the point where they, they, uh, the bottle will contain toxins. So the polyunsaturated fat itself isn't bad for you uh, unless you eat too much, which right. we do. And then the other issue is that it's just a, it's bad for us because it degrades and it's just going to degrade more and more, the more you do to it. And so if you just have uh, corn or soy or sunflower or any of these things that they extract these oils from, it's fine as long as you're not getting way too much. 
it's not unhealthy. It's an actually an essential fat. And so you do need some in your diet, maybe somewhere between one, 2% of your calories of both the omega threes and the omega sixes. But the, um, the, the fact is that now we're getting probably five to 10 times as much as we need. And and they are, the amount is toxic. And then those toxins develop as we eat these oils that are more and more processed. So they're a double whammy. And if what I just said makes your eyes glaze over, then you've answered the question as to why you haven't heard this before, because it's complicated chemistry. There's a lot that's going on. There's a lot of steps involved before it becomes clinically, you know, to explain how it's clinically relevant. And it is when you look at your cholesterol uh, particle sizes. So this is one of the things that I um, talk about at length in uh, chapter seven of deep nutrition, which is how these polyunsaturated fats consumed in excess and the toxins that they contain um, affect your body's lipoproteins to cause arteriosclerosis. So I don't know if you wanted to discuss that. Well, we can. We, we've, we've actually discussed that in previous interviews, and uh, but I'd like to go more into these toxins, you know, because these are highly perishable fats that tend to oxidize and go rancid, essentially. But then when you heat them, they form uh, even worse things. I mean, it certainly can form trans fats if they're heated high enough, especially with a catalyst. But they can also form cyclic aldehydes. And uh, there's been a movement, thanks to Dr. Kumar's lawsuit, actually, that has actually catalyzed the FDA to ban these trans fats. But now they're substituting even worse fats <laughs> than, know, tra it's, than trans fats. So food scientists are always a step ahead. <laughs> yeah. So it's it, I, what I really want to ground people and understand the basics. Because once you understand the basics, then you can avoid all this garbage. And the key is the processed foods. And and actually, you do, in your book, you talk about Ansel Keys and and really how he was the, the villain who was commonly acknowledged as uh, creating the, the popularity of the low-fat diet. And, but he did it in a rational response because there was an epidemic of heart disease in the early 20th century. But he, he vilified the wrong item. It was, the, it was He vilified saturated fat instead of the vegetable oils they were using, and he had them replaced with carbohydrates. So it's just crazy. That, that we've done that now we've got to go back and correct that. Yeah, he made things worse, but he, he, he just was mistaken. And plus he was funded by the sugar industry. And he made his name, don't forget, he, he made his bones, he made a name for himself with processed food because he created the K-ration, which is how the military was fed in World War II, which is essentially our first foray, foray into processed food on a massive scale. And so I don't know what the connections were. I'm sure there's some journalists out there that could do some fascinating stories about that. But I just feel like there was always something kind of a little more than just innocent blunder about the, the consistent um, hiding of the truth that Ansel Keys is responsible for. So I, I, I feel like he's kind of a bad guy. Um, <laughs> I talk about that. <laughs> yeah. So, um, but yeah, so cigarette smoking, actually uh, the curve of cigarette smoking and deaths from heart attacks per capita, um, cigarette smoking per capita and, cig and deaths per heart attacks per capita match perfectly. So a lot of people talk about, oh, well, it's sugar that's causing heart attacks or it's obesity or it's saturated fat or whatever. But the only curves that match perfectly up and then down again, because deaths per capita from heart attacks have fallen, as have uh, as has the per capita cigarette smoking rates. They're almost perfect mirror images of each other. So in, in my view, it was the cigarette smoking. And, and that's relevant to this whole conversation about vegetable oils, because cigarette smoke is bad for us for the same reason that vegetable oils are bad for us. And that has to do with oxidation. Mm -hmm. So oxidative stress is what happens when your body has all these free radicals that are de deteriorating in your body. Um, oxidative stress is like, um, like liquid. It's like a, the, the great disease maker. Um, every chronic disease we now know is associated with oxidative stress. There's not a disease you can name that isn't, whether it's cancer, the A to Z of diseases. So Alzheimer's, cancer, even diabetic complications um, and uh, you know infections get, are worse by uh, oxidative, when there's a lot of oxidative stress, your immune system doesn't work as well. So um, it's- and, and, the, 
And ultimately, that stress has its impact on the mitochondria, <laughs> which is yes. why, why it produces its symptoms. That then most of the oxidative stress actually occurs in the mitochondria in the production of energy. So, but it's key. And, and the mitochondria, of course, has cell membranes, and they're made up of fat. Right. <laughs> Imagine that. So, and especially in the brain, you do a, a wonderful job of exploring the relationship of this damaged fat into the brain and all the toxic consequences. So why don't you delve into that? So, yeah, so our brain is made out of about 50% fat by dry weight and about 30% of that are the two types of essential fatty acids, both the omega-3 and the omega-6. So we talk a lot about how you need omega-3 for your brain as, as if omega-6 is you know not part of the equation, but it's an equal part of the equation. And um, these are very, very fluid molecules. That's why they're in oils and not in solid fats like butter. And our brains are all about fluidity that they connect and they our nerve cells speak to each other because the membranes are so fluid in our brains that they can, you know, bleb apart and deliver the signal of one nerve cell talking to another nerve cell in the blink of an eye and um, in the, the speed of thought, literally. And that's why we need these special fatty acids. But the thing that makes our brain um, susceptible to aging and age-related diseases is the fact that these that we have we have these um, highly reactive easily oxidized fatty acids in our brains at high quantity. And if our diets are not high enough in um, antioxidants and the vegetable oils are completely stripped of antioxidants and the way they affect our liver, they strip out the glutathione, which produces, um, you know, the, the, the antioxidant enzymes, aside from the antioxidants that we can eat, we have enzyme systems that are our antioxidants and um, the eating vegetable oils kind of outstrips the ability of these enzymes to control oxidation. So we need more antioxidants in our diet and they do help. But really, if you stop eating vegetable oils, you hardly need to eat the same amount of antioxidants. You don't need to supplement so much. Um, and, but you do definitely always, of course, benefit from having antioxidants in your diet because particularly if you're healing from a standard American diet, one of the big ways that it damages you is by this process of oxidation. So the first step I always tell people is getting these vegetable oils out of your life and out of your head. This is where they wind up if you're eating it's them. where they wind up. That's so right. the, key, the key thing, and maybe you can expand on this, is avoiding processed food, eating real food. That means you cook most of your meals at home. You stay away from restaurants because there's hardly any restaurants around, way less than 5%. They're going to prepare you truly authentically healthy movie, meals prepared from health, you know, real food. So it's not that you can't do it. They're really hard to find. So why don't you expand on that? Because that's the core of what we're teaching. How do you do it? Mm -hmm. yeah, how do you do it? How do you implement this? How do you make that transition? How do you avoid all these pernicious toxicities? So the first step I, uh, I recommend to my patients and what I talk about is the first step in the book is really uh, to start with a healthy breakfast um, because breakfast is the most important meal of the day not to screw up. And so the, if you don't want to stop, you know, turn around all 180 degrees on uh, suddenly become a gourmet chef, just start with a healthy breakfast and um, have, you know, uh, good quality pastured milk, if you can get it, or at least organic with cream in your coffee. Very simple. And that's going to help you burn fat, right? And, and so no carbs, but plenty of healthy, natural fat. So you could also have eggs with cheese and butter and maybe whatever vegetables you like um, for flavor, not the starchy vegetables, obviously. So those are two examples of just a really healthy breakfast. And once you do that, once you get your day started where you're helping your fat burn uh, that you have revved up overnight when you weren't eating, um, you got that revved up. I talk about time between meals as like the fourth macronutrient, right? So uh, you were eating all, you were <laughs> eating your body fat at night, hopefully, you know, more mm -hmm. and more as the night goes on. And so you've got the, um, the fat burning enzymes ramped up. And if you have a very high fat breakfast, you keep that rolling. And then you don't have that hunger drive anywhere near as strong by lunch. And you can, um, you know, you're, you don't have to snack. You can make a better choice maybe, or you can at, very, at the very least 
concentrate better and don't have to have like another bit of sugar to concentrate well at work. So that's kind of like the first step that I recommend a lot of people take. I will challenge you on something because if you were to take your circumstances back 16 years ago now when you were suffering out in Hawaii with your chronic fatigue syndrome from eating all the sugar as a runner, would you... It's my belief and understanding that if you were to have even raw milk in your coffee, that may not be the best option because there's still sugar in that. It's galactose. And it might be a better option just to just throw the butter in, which has no no, that. no carbohydrates, which might give you a better better chance of doing that. Because you really have to make this, at least in the transition phase where you're, you're, you're converting to or learning, teaching your body how to burn fat as its primary fuel. Yeah. So it kind of depends if you were a dairy um, eater, because if you were, you probably have a lot of lactose fermenting bacteria in your gut anyway. And so uh, people with healthy gut flora, you know, I'm not citing any research. I'm just saying I would imagine that people with healthy gut flora can have have less of a glycemic response because they're those bacteria are gobbling up that lactose. And galactose. That's, yeah, that's a perspective. I, I, I'm not sure if it's going to be. I don't be, know if it's that. I, I think, it, yeah, they'd have to make it to the large intestine. My guess is that it's going to be broken into the disaccharides and the monos in, in long before it gets there and gives the bacteria an opportunity to digest it. And it's going to be absorbed systemically into the blood where it's going to continue the same process. But the short-chain fatty acids don't get digested. They go and they fuel those bacteria. You know, like the, the propionic acid, the acetates, butyric, those are really useful for the improving the microbiome. Right. Yeah. So, you know, one of the things that I'm a little bit fuzzy on, and and I think a lot of people are, is what's going on in the small intestine? Because Mm -hmm. we know that we eat bacteria and they end up in the colon. We can reach the colon and study it. But I'm not clear that the small intestine is as sterile as we were taught that it was in medical school because they're, we eat bacteria. So when do they wake up again? And we do produce mucus in the small intestine. So maybe there's, maybe they are alive in there. And it's a very difficult place to study because we just can't reach it with scopes and things. But maybe you know more about that than I do. No, no, I think it's still a mystery. I don't think anyone realizes what's going on there. And we probably don't know. And we'll learn more as we go on. But what we do know is, is and I actually hadn't heard until I heard you, uh, Ben Greenfield interview, is a, a toxin that's in fat, which is called 4-HNE, which uh, is really quite uh, significant. And I'd like you to expand on that because it's, it's another important piece of information that they have that'll help you avoid these toxins. Yeah. So for HNE is a shorthand for four hydroxy nonanol, if anybody wants to Google that. Um, and it is formed during the process of processing the vegetable oils into polyunsaturated fats. Um, and it's highly toxic. It actually is toxic to, to gut flora, uh, to the good gut flora as well. And it, uh, its consumption is correlated with having um, a much more obesogenic uh, balance of gut flora. And so um, they've actually done studies where they create fat mice and then they take that gut flora from the fat mice and give it to skinny mice and it changes the way the mice behave. They get more anxious and sometimes some of the mice eat, will actually eat more. And when I looked at this study, I said, well, how do they make these mice fat? And what they were doing was feeding them a high fat diet. Now, here's where it gets really complicated. And there's a a gentleman that you need to have on your show because he is like one of the 10 top few people in the world who know what I'm about to tell you. That is that most of the studies on high fat diets that use lard are using lard that came from animals that were fed corn and soy and are high as high in polyunsaturated fatty acids nearly as if they were fed corn and soy oil. So these so-called high saturated fat diets are far from it. And that means that we have to rewind that millions, hundreds of millions of dollars worth of research into the so-called health harms of high saturated fat diets that were done in animal studies. And so so that's getting back to the study that that we were originally talking about. The way they made the mice fat was with this lard that was very high. Uh, The research diets uh, came out with a small press release, didn't get any attention, said, um, 
you know what? We just found out that the fatty acid profiles that we've been telling you, uh, they're totally wrong. <laughs> Oops. And they've probably been that way for maybe a long time. Anywho, keep buying our stuff. So um, it's it's really kind of mind-blowing the consequences of that and, you know, the fact that that there's well-meaning doctors and researchers out there who don't understand the science and the depth that they need to, to recognize that they're being misled. Mm-hmm. And the consequence of that, of having these, all these omega-6 vegetable oils and what ostensibly is a saturated fat diet is that it gets metabolized to 4-H-N-E, which causes this DNA damage and in, in the pathology that they're actually observing in these studies. Is that the mechanism? Yeah, so it causes cytotoxicity and DNA damage. It causes um, a lot of, I mean, it's, they're just very bad. So they, 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 they are instigators of free radical cascades, which damage the cell membrane, damage the mitochondrial membrane, and the free radicals themselves, if they're occurring inside the nucleus, will damage DNA. And of course, they will damage mitochondrial DNA. So it, it's just like, uh, like cell blasto, you know, you can't, you can't um, almost design a better delivery vehicle for a toxin that's going to destroy your health slowly over the course of maybe 10 years, maybe 20 years, depending on the genetics of your antioxidant system capacity. So this is where we get the individual differences is from how who is you know better genetically able to handle the compli- to handle oxidative stress, really, the to handle the the side effects of the modern diet, which is really an all all you can eat buffet of a variety, an endless variety of chronic disease. Yeah, one item we didn't touch on is that many of these, and you do in your book, but I just want to emphasize here is that many of these uh, vegetable oils are GMO, and as a result of that, they're not only genetically engineered, but they're designed to resist herbicides like glyphosate. So they're contaminated with glyphosate, which just disrupts your gut tight junctions and increases penetration of these foreign uh, invaders, especially heated proteins, which can cause allergies. And it just it goes on and on. So it's just a synergistic toxicity. Absolutely. Now, I don't normally bring up this fine point with, you know, when I'm being interviewed, but is you're a doctor, so I will. So um, the, the, the percentage of toxin in vegetable oil, um, even if it's GMO free, like the difference between GMO free vegetable oil and um, organic vegetable oil mm-hmm. with regard to toxins is going to be maybe like one ten thousandth of a, of a percent. Now, this is not just glyphosate, this is the 4-HNE. Yeah, so the 4-HNE comes from the oil itself. So it's present in- Intrinsic, it's a a physical phenomenon that occurs when you you refine and process oils. It's made out of the oil. No matter how healthy it is initially, right. Right, so let's say you have a bottle um, that's, uh, you know, I don't know, like um, a liter or whatever that is in English. (laughs) Thank you. 5% of that, as much as 5% of that can be toxic types of trans fat. So that is- um, you know, 50 grams. So that's like almost two ounces. So we're talking about two ounces of a highly toxic compound versus parts per million, which you can't even measure. You can't feel it. So the glyphosate is bad. I'm not a fan. It's really bad for the environment. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's, you know, its effects on us are, are intermingled with the fact that what it's in is these toxic vegetable oils. Mm-hmm. So we yeah. don't really know how bad it is. You no, know, no, we no, we, there's, there's a lot of science supporting how toxic oh, of course, it is. But of it's, it's a synergistic. It's not like yes. one or the other. You want to avoid them both. I mean, right. you avoid them both by eating real food. It's a simple strategy. It's not complicated. You know, yes. it's not hard. Just stay away from restaurants, <laughs> you know, and uh, know who's making the food in your house, whether it's you or someone you delegate it to. It's a key thing. But yes. I want to get back to some of the details of the fats because that's the key. My understanding is the single most important fat you can have is DHA. It's critical. It's absolutely essential. It's really the only fatty acid that I know that you uh, eat that unless you're starving, your body is not going to burn it for fuel. It's going to integrate it into your cellular membranes. And it's essential, especially for the photoelectric effect, for converting photons from the sun into to DC electric current to, to energize your mitochondria. So the key is how do you get it? I believe, and I think you do too, is you get it from real food. 
Uh, so, and we know seafood's contaminated. That's why, unless it's really tiny ones like sardines and anchovies, which I don't think you disagree with, but uh, this, there's some confusion in your book and I just wanted to go over that. Because my review of the literature is that, you, yes, there are other omega-3s, the ALAs from the plant-based, like flax, chia, and hemp, that do convert to some DHA, but my understanding is it's clinically insignificant. It's less than 5% and less than 1%, which is not gonna replace the DHA you need in your brain. So I'm wondering, unless you're aware of different literature, I'm, that I'm yes. something I'm, I'm reading. There's uh, researchers that have done work showing what happens when you, what happens to omega-3 levels when you just pull back on um, the omega-6 in your diet, basically, and, um, and the DHA. And it turns out that just pulling back on the omega-6 enables your liver to function better so that it can actually elongate those short chain uh, mm. omega-3s much more efficiently. So it has to do with the enzymes called delta-6. Delta-6 to saturase. Yeah, that's yeah. inhibited by um, some of these toxins that are the breakdown products of the vegetable well, it, oils. And high insulin levels will also inhibit that enzyme. Yes. So, but, the tip, uh, so maybe the studies I'm reviewing are related to the people who are eating lots of omega-6 vegetable oils and have insulin resistance. So they're, they, it's like impossible. There's no way they're going to create more. But you have a healthy person, it's a different scenario. Yeah. You know what? When people are insulin resistant, we don't know that they are uh, like the cause there. It could actually be related to the fact that they've got vegetable oils in their liver, damaging their liver's ability to respond to, to um, normally to, and to, to respond to insulin normally. Because the reason I said is because uh, Francis Sladek, who is at the University of California, Riverside, did some research comparing um, co coconut oil versus um, corn oil. And she found that, you know, equal amounts of carb in the diet, the corn oil led to insulin resistance, uh, glucose intolerance, and pre, you know, what you would call prediabetes, as well as obesity. So our mechanism of understanding the true molecular underlying pathology here of, uh, of obesity and diabetes and so on has importantly focused on sugar, but myopically focused on sugar. And we've not looked at the other uh, major factor in our diet, the fact that we're eating these vegetable oils and you know 30 to 50% of our calories. We've always consumed carbohydrate. We've always consumed sugar, certainly not quite, you know, you can argue about in the quantities and stuff, but we've never consumed you know, four hydroxy, not at all. <laughs> and, uh, and all that kind of stuff that we are now consuming. So, so and, and, you know, I couldn't agree with you more. And, and thank you so for stating that so eloquently and precisely. It's a uh, really well done. I mean, it, Thanks. it really capsulized <laughs> that information so well, but I wanted to, you know, assuming that that's true. And I believe it is, as you do, uh, that, uh, you, you would extend that, um, analysis to other types of processed vegetable oils. Uh, and, and when I yes. lecture, I frequently ask the audience, who here has flaxseed oil in their home? And I say, well, just think of a neighbor or relative you don't like and just give it to them because it's oxidized. It, you know, you got to get rid of it. And they, you know, we talk about avocado oil. Now, olive oil is different. It's not a processed oil. It's actually squeezed. It's pressed. So it's a little bit different. But this whole other issue of the if it's not if it's adulterated or not, which is like 80 percent of the olive oil in the U.S. But I'm wondering if you could comment on just get rid of all the darn oils. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's coconut oil and olive oil might be the exceptions. But just if you want avocado oil, use avocados. If you want flaxseed oils, use flax seeds. If you want you know, sesame seed oil, use sesame seeds. This is why when people go on the Esselstyn or the Ornish diet and avoid all added oils, they do experience benefits. So, you know, it, I yeah. never really explain it for it. It makes perfect sense. <laughs> yes. So um, getting the toxic oils out of their diet. Yeah, exactly. So, um, you know, and that's a big factor, right? Um, even if they may not be having what I would consider a perfectly balanced diet, at least it's a huge step in the right direction. Um, so I, you know, I, I can't completely say that that is a unhealthy diet. No. Um, I, and just, I do have on my website, I finally posted after years of people saying, you need to have a list of good fats and bad. It's on my website. Now I have, you can print it out too. It's like a little infographic on good oils, bad oils, and 
okay oils. And so okay is like, well, it's, it's, uh, you, you know, if you can't afford as much of the good ones as you'd like, um, and you don't want to give up oil altogether because you just love your fried chicken or whatever, <laughs> then, um, then, you know, this just realize this is better than Crisco and, you know, all those other, um, uh, the other, and the vegetable oils like corn and so on. So you would definitely agree that just stay away from all the processed oils, no matter how healthy ostensibly appears to me, no matter if it's organic, just get it from the original source. Do not refine it. Yeah. I mean, if you can, if you can do that, that that's great. Now, um, one of the best fats is not even an oil, it's butter. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and so I, I use that a lot. Um, also, if you want to deep fry and you can get your hands on some tallow or beef, uh, you know, that's extremely delicious. Uh, culinary, um, like, yeah, exactly. It's it's a little more expensive if you're getting the grass fed stuff, but um, well, it's let's talk good. about that because if you were to extend this thinking forward, you, you might be concerned about some toxic metabolites, even in tallow, even from a healthy grass fed tallow that may not be optimal for health. But uh, but so I, I'd like to hear your view on that. And what your perspective is? Yeah, so you know it hasn't been. Uh, so let's say you get uh, lard from a pig that was just conventionally raised and they've gotten lots of soy and corn and even added cottonseed oil in the feed because they just want to bump up the calories and get those pigs fatter, which it works really well, um, gets us fatter too. Um, so let's say you're just getting regular um, lard. How does that compare to vegetable oil? Well, it's better, but it's um, it's it, it's something where... It's not really something I would, I can really recommend. And the reason I say this is because recently, you know, I've been eating grass fed and avoiding these oils for over 10 years. And so recently I've been having more um, like non grass fed um, beef with the fat on there. um, And it gives me a stomach ache in the exact same way that I get a stomach ache when I have any of these oils. So, you know, our intestinal tract is the first line of defense against this stuff. And if you haven't had it in a long time, the enzymes that I mentioned, those antioxidant enzymes are relatively downregulated um, because you haven't like built up the ability, you haven't built up the need, for, you don't have the need for them. Mm-hmm. And so you have more sensitivity, sensitivity to it. And so like, I'm extremely sensitive now. And I, ha- I just had like a steak and I got a stomach ache and that was very depressing. But to realize that, you know, that means oh, that those it, cows it, are not well to fed. Me, to me, that's a classic example of being grateful for those types of symptoms because your body is the best biological indicator. You just have to learn to develop the sensitivity and appreciation for it and know that something you ate is bad. And it's only, how else is it going to communicate with you that you're doing something that's good for your long-term health? Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And, and people do say, you know, if this stuff is so bad, why don't I feel bad? Well, if you have heartburn or if you're on heartburn meds or you have any kind of intestinal problem, you're feeling it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, most of the time it's the food that's caused us to go on the, these these prescription drugs, which in no way, shape, or form treat the foundational cause and just are symptomatic band-aids that ultimately cause more harm than good in almost every single case. So in one of the, you know, before we hit the record button that's on this interview, we had asked you about mTOR because I have uh, so many professional audiences I speak to just have no clue what it is. You know, it's it's really one of the most important, probably the most important uh, metabolic signaling pathway in the body. Um, the R and the S stands for rapamycin, stands like cancer drug, very potent. So it suppresses this pathway because it's with pathways elevated, it's just like elevated insulin that causes damage and, and problems. So the biggest catalyst to increase mTOR is protein. So uh, I'm wondering, you know, generally, now it doesn't mean you have to suppress it all the time, just like you don't want to do ketogenesis all the time. You just want to do it long until you transition and then do it cycle in and out uh, because that's healthy. Cycling is healthy. So similarly, I think you have to cycle with, with mTOR. And I'm a little bit concerned. You know, one of my mentors is Ron Rosedale. He taught me this. And, you know, I looked, dive, dove deep in the, in the molecular biological literature. And, and, you know, I couldn't find anything to dispute it. But I'm interested in your perspective in that, you know, he says, you know, you should be a gram per kilogram of lean body mass, which for most people is 30, 40, 50, 60 grams of protein a day. And in your book, you recommend, you know, four, six, eight ounces of, of a meat source of protein, which would far exceed that. I mean, it's like 
their protein amount in one serving. So I'm wondering if you could comment on that. So, yeah, so what I recommend for women is somewhere around 60, um, you know, 50 to 60 grams and maybe a little bit more for men. Um, and so that would be 60 grams is like if you were just going to get protein only from a steak, that would be like a 10 ounce steak if you had no mm -hmm. other protein sources. So that's a good amount. So yeah. um, and, and I recommend that um, like to do, you know, like a lot of the time, but not all the time, because I, I do recommend, you know, like you were saying, cyclic, intermittent fasting. Uh, and so the way I kind of look at it is uh, what is mTOR? You know, what is it for? What does the cell think about mTOR? And what is its purpose in the cell? And of course, it's slightly different in different cell types. But um, in general, it's a decision point for the cell as to whether it's going to hy hypertrophy or grow bigger, which is what athletes want. Mm -hmm. So when you're talking to um, the sports medicine people, they're like mTOR. Yeah. And when you're talking to the cancer people, um, they're down on mTOR because mTOR makes cells grow and divide and cancer is a, a disease of, you know, uncontrolled cell division. So, but it's like, you know, it's like, if you, if like what we said is, is like, it's kind of like, well, what's better day or night? You need both, right? right. So you, you need protein and you need to have high amounts at some at some time so that you can uh, get the signal to your muscle to grow and um, to keep on growing. So especially important if you don't exercise a lot because your muscles, especially after age 35, atrophy much more quickly when you don't exercise. So if you're at that age or above, you need to a lot of the time get signaling with, you know, a total, uh, maybe 50, 60 for a woman grams of protein every day, and maybe 10 to 20 grams more for a man to signal that mTOR so that those, um, those muscles don't atrophy. On the other hand, every once in a while, you kind of need to do a little house keeping, keeping and cleaning and getting rid of the cells that your body's not really using. And so that's where intermittent fasting uh, and, you know, ketosis come in. So there's yeah. a balance. Yeah, I think that there still may benefit to keeping the protein or uh, intake a little bit lower and just having the higher doses <clears throat> infrequently the days that you're actually engaging your anabolic uh, processes with strength training or some other form where you're going to actually use those those protein sources and the signals and the IGF-1 and the increased insulin levels that you're going to do, which I think are important. And interesting, you know, you had mentioned that the cancer people are down on mTOR, but uh, Dr. Seafried is one of the, as I'm sure you're aware, is one of the primary researchers here. And there's a, gr a group of oncologists in Turkey. I and mean, I interviewed Dr. Slocum as one of the ones who speak English well. And they unknowingly, I mean, they didn't do it intentionally, but they were implementing this feast and famine strategy. And they were giving them large amounts of foods after their your chemo it actually worked. So they didn't do it intentionally. It was an artifact of the protocol. And, and so, you know, it, it actually improved. So even in cancer, you still still need to stimulate them to her occasionally. Not it makes the chemo look good, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's really the fasting and the, <laughs> the refeeding. <laughs> yeah, the refeeding is, I think the metabolic magic actually occurs during the refeeding, but you got to go through the process initially. It's like the metabolic magic of exercise occurs during the rest period. But if you never did the exercise, you're just going to rest. You're not going to get the benefit. So this is why I like, you know, the, the, the ancestral way of thinking, right? I mean, you know, we evolved for most of our history as, as hunters and gatherers and intermittent eaters, right? We didn't necessarily eat every day because we didn't bother hunting every day. And some days we would overeat because we had to finish off, you know, this giant thing we just caught. So it just mimics what as omnivores slash carnivores we've been doing. And um, it's, you know, you have to do it artificially now. So you have to mm -hmm. think about it sort of, if you wanted to, or, or, or you could just do what a lot of people kind of fall into, which is when they're traveling and it's not easy to get healthy food. Well, you just don't eat maybe for you know, <laughs> a while. <laughs> yeah, I, I call it the wrap principle, replicate ancestral practices. And because <laughs> our biochemistry, our genetics, we're all optimized for this. I mean, you can go back, 10,000 years, 100,000 years, wherever, however long you want to trace it back. I mean, mTOR is like one of the most highly conserved biochemical pathways in the whole animal kingdom. I mean, it's just like in almost every eukaryotic cell. Yeah. So <laughs> you can't violate these things. These, you know, the biology doesn't care who you are, who you know, how much money you have. You got it. If you don't honor these, these ancient signaling pathways, you're, it's going to devastate your health. I mean, there's just no way out of it. 
Absolutely. And it's the patterns and the habit and the, the, um, you know, the, the environment, your habitat, um, that, uh, we used to, you know, be following the natural cycles. Um, but now it doesn't at all. And so that's part of why it's kind of hard to, for a lot of people to understand what to do and how to adopt all of it. And it seems like so much at once, uh, mm-hmm. because really it, you know, it, it can be overwhelming. So that's why I kind of like, um, helped people to, pick like, well, where, where do you want to start? Do you want to start by yeah. maybe just narrowing your window of eating so that you only eat maybe eight hours a day? Um, or do you want to start your day with a healthy breakfast or, you know, just not snack or something, you know? So there's yeah. very simple changes that as long as you feel some positive feedback um, that you get more of that mental clarity, you can continue to make the next change. Mm-hmm. Yes, and you do a really great job in your book. It's a pretty long book, you know, it's like uh, know. 600 pages, 700 pages, but it's great. It's I mean, great. you don't have to read the whole thing. You read what you want, but it's a, it's a useful tool. And you're obviously obsessive, OCD, obsessive compulsive and putting this stuff together. That's great. We need people like you. So, and what's your next book going to be on? So, um, yeah, I'm going to do something. It's more of a programmatic book of how to adopt this way of, um, of eating and focusing also on fat burn, because I think it's the next... I think it's, you know, so important to help people understand um, the benefits of being a fat burner, right? They just, they, yeah. they're unending It's because it's our natural state. Well, and, and, you know, I'll, I'll encourage you to consider some other options too, because what I did in my book is uh, help people understand that it's, it's, it is about fat burning, but because you, that helps optimize your mitochondrial function. But there's other things other than the fuel that you're consuming is food that can also optimize mitochondrial, mitochondrial function, like cold thermogenesis and jumping in the cold pool, which is increases, you know, brown or beige mm-hmm. adipose tissue and, and optimizing photobiology and minimizing exposure to electromagnetic interference. So a lot of different things you could exercise, of course. I mean, you can go on and on, but it's just a whole ball of wax. So, but probably one of the, maybe the most important, although some people may challenge that with some of these other things is equally important would be the fuel you're eating and it's a simple thing and you got to eat so you got to eat you may as well do it right exactly yes so i'll, I'll refer people to 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 you and get you a copy of my book so you can use it for you know for useful strategies in your new book because we all we all need to share this information and the more people yeah. that are sharing it the better because it's about giving people that because the media isn't going to tell you it's controlled by six corporate sponsors. And, you know, that, I mean, six corporations that really uh, funnel through almost everything you're going to hear. So we need these other resources that will tell people the truth about what they need to eat to optimize their health and avoid these chronic degenerative diseases that are barraging us. Yes. And I think the next generation of doctors is much more aware of all this. And I'm, I'm working actually with medical students. So I'm hoping to help oh, increase great. the proportion. <laughs> bless, you, bless you for doing that. There's certainly a need for that. That's great. That is just absolutely great. Uh, you do yeah, a very, you're playing a very valuable role and I'm really grateful for all that you're doing. So I really appreciate it. Well, thanks for doing what you do and getting the word out so effectively. Yeah, well, it's it's a matter of just communicating, and we try to do that. So, but before we close, are there any points you'd like to emphasize, or maybe points we didn't discuss during our conversation? Um, yeah, I think um, the the main thing is that you know uh, we can make it all sound complicated, and I, I always like to. My husband always likes actually to remind me that. Uh, food should taste good. And so you should enjoy what you're eating and you will enjoy what you're eating. When you get these vegetable oils and your too much sugar out of your diet, you will enjoy the healthy food a lot, lot more. You'll really appreciate it. Yeah. And you'll get your memory comes back, your mental clarity improves and your cravings just disappear. Once your body burns fast. I mean, it's the most magical thing. I mean, I knew about how to eat healthy for a long, long time, many decades, but until I really taught my body to turn back for fuel, it's just those cravings just never, I could control it because I have good willpower, but you don't have to, you don't have to. Just, just exactly. A, it's just great. All right. Well, thanks for everything you're doing. And uh, we'll look forward to your next book. We'll have you on when it's written, probably in four years from now. But. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, <the> adult, but... <laughs> oh, right. yeah. Probably about a year at least. Oh, good. Well, we'll definitely yeah. have you on for that. And, uh, we'll coordinate oh, it so that we'll, you know, we can get you some uh, attention on the New York Times list. That'll be good. Oh, awesome. That'd be fantastic. Thank you, Dr. McCullough. All right. Well, we'll look forward to the next time. This has been a pleasure.